Hello and welcome to episode 21 of Ask the Therapist. It's lovely to have you here. Today I am interviewing one of my therapeutic inspirations, somebody I've wanted on the podcast for a long time. If you're listening to this close to the release date, we could still be in the midst of a, a global pandemic and this podcast is very relevant because we're going to be talking about trauma, post-traumatic stress and EMDR. EMDR is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. It's a treatment that is in the NICE guidelines for the treatment of trauma, which the NICE guidelines outline the best evidence-based treatments for different conditions. And for trauma, post-traumatic stress, the NICE guidelines say that you should either have CBT or EMDR. I'm trained in both. I love the com combination. I wouldn't take away either. I love that I can bring CBT to EMDR, but EMDR has transformed how I tra how I work with post-traumatic stress. Trauma is a real specialist interest area for me. And, you know, I think so many people struggle throughout their lives with trauma and sometimes not, not aware that they have symptoms that are very very treatable and EMDR has changed so many of people's lives that I've worked with, had the privilege of delivering and training in EMDR and I have a guest list for Ask the Therapist so I have a little Trello board and I write down everybody I'd like to be on the podcast and some people say no to me but at this difficult time during the pandemic I looked at this list and I thought I'm just going to email out this guest and I was just blown away that really quickly they came back and said yes they'd love to do it so absolutely overwhelmed a little nervous which you may hear in my voice but I think it's a fantastic episode so insightful for people who may be struggling with trauma maybe going through you know some stress at the moment with with what we're going through with covid and lots of us are at very different points some first line people and first responders and people suffering with illness and grief you know there's so many places we can be at the moment and I think you're, you're really going to benefit from kind of understanding more about EMDR. So my guest today is Dr. Michael Patterson, OBE. I met Michael back in 2013 when I trained in EMDR and I attended his EMDR masterclass. I've done part one, two and three and the supervision session. And um, it was fantastic training. And the training was one thing, but then actually putting in it into practice and helping people recover from trauma. I've worked with veterans and people who've had car accidents and um, people who experienced the MEN arena attack and all sorts of things. And I think working with trauma, while it can be some very distressing, it can be very rewarding because the treatments for post-traumatic stress are really good. We're very lucky. And so to help you understand it more, here is the interview with Dr. Michael Patterson. I hope you enjoy and do let us know what you thought. I'll put links to Michael's website and how you can get in touch at the end in the show notes. Hope you enjoy. 
Welcome to Ask the Therapist, Michael. It's, it's lovely to have you here. Um, when you. I decided to do um, EMDR training, which was a number of years ago, I really didn't know much about it, but I've always had an interest of working with trauma. I think it's one of my specialist areas. And EMDR, I became aware that it was in the NICE guidelines for the treatment of trauma. And I thought, well, if it's got the evidence base, I need to learn more about it and get trained up in it. And I chose your training which was absolutely fantastic and I can really still remember being moved by your story could you share your journey with us today absolutely um, many years ago I'd been a member of the Royal Ulster Constabulary which was the then police service in Northern Ireland mm. and in 1981 there was a, a rocket attack uh, an IRA rocket attack on my vehicle a colleague was killed and I lost both arms and uh, injured uh, to injuries to the lower limbs as well Mm. So um, it led to the end of my police career, but thankfully it led to one in clinical psychology. And uh, having the policing background and uh, the Northern Ireland Troubles, there was a lot of psychological trauma here. So I was always interested in working with police officers who had been traumatized. Yeah. And I read about EMDR therapy. Uh, I was quite fascinated by it. It seemed quite quirky. And yes. You wave your fingers in front of somebody's eyes and they get better. And so um, I had obvious, obvious limitations having lost both arms. So yeah. I thought, I wonder, could I do it? And, and I spoke to a colleague who was very experienced in EMDR therapy. And he said, well, yes, it is something you could do. And uh, so I trained in EMDR uh, myself and then uh, developed my skills working with uh, traumatized police officers primarily. And mm. uh, then some firefighters too. And uh, then general trauma in the community. And I uh, found that it was making a huge difference in people's lives and uh, really took to it like a duck to water. Mm. And uh, opportunities arose then to uh, then become a trainer for in EMDR Europe, which I did. And then after that, Francine Shapiro, who was the originator of EMDR therapy, invited me to go and train with her as a trainer in California. Oh, wow. So, uh, although I already was an EMDR Europe accredited trainer, then I uh, was able to then train with her and become a trainer with the EMDR Institute as well. Fantastic. What an, an interesting journey. And it really does transform lives, doesn't it? It's, I mean, I think even after the training, when I started, I was working in the NHS and I was one of the first people to be trained in it within my team. So I ended up doing quite a lot of EMDR every day about you know kind of seeing about five people a day and yes. it, and I think it was that kind of intensity of providing EMDR that just it it just blew me away I think after the training I, I was still was it will this work won't it work but it, it just really transforms lives and many people haven't heard about it could you explain what EMDR is for us well it's now recognized as a psychological therapy in its own right uh, initially it was seen as a technique a desensitization technique um, mm. where the disturbing memory once it becomes locked in the brain uh, was able to be desensitized so it didn't have the same impact <clears throat> but over time it, uh, it's been shown that it's effective with more than uh, just the big T traumas that you would see with post-traumatic stress disorder, such as the serious assaults, the rapes, the uh, um, historical abuse. Uh, mm. Where people have had uh, even smaller T traumas, then they can become locked in the brain, stored the way they were experienced at the time. 
and uh, they can be continue to be activated and continue to be disturbing. So by doing EMDR therapy, uh, it helps the brain then process the experience and move it to what we call adaptive resolution. It's a bit, mm. uh, I suppose, like laundry. Uh, normal everyday events will get processed by the brain. They'll get stored away in time and space. So it's like yeah. putting an, an item of clothing in the washing machine. It gets washed, it gets dried, it gets ironed, it gets put away nice and neatly. But whenever a disturbing event occurs and the brain has difficulty processing that, it's like an item of clothing that doesn't go through the laundry process, it lies there unwashed. Mm. So for example, uh, a lad of 15 who's been wearing the same underpants for five days, then he decides he's going to change them. Now, a sensible thing would be put them in the wash basket, but he doesn't. He throws them underneath his bed. So you can imagine the strains of bacteria that are bre- have been breeding in the underpants <laughs> for five days. Yeah. Yes, so, I've not heard this analogy before. It's very good. Yeah. Yeah. So, in the heat, so in the heat of the bedroom, underneath the bed, the bacteria continues to breed. And of course, it start, the underpants start to smell. So a smell wafts out from underneath the bed and it fills the room. It affects the immediate environment, the then and there. Yeah. If the door of the room is left open, the smell wafts out and goes in different directions. So it spreads out to affect one area, it spreads out to affect another area, it spreads out to affect another area too. And that's very similar to what happens with those disturbing events that the brain hasn't been able to process. When they occur, they affect the then and there. Mm-hmm. And they lay down a belief system. So that colors our perception of the situation we're in. Then it'll affect our uh, perception of it, our attitude, and then our behavior. So yeah. as we go through life, we're, draw, we're drawing on what we now believe about ourselves. So it could be something to do with I'm vulnerable or I'm not in control or it could be I'm worthless or I'm powerless or I'm, I'm responsible. Mm-hmm. So once these beliefs are, are, are laid down and it colors our later perception, it affects how we see a later situation. Mm-hmm. That connects to where the memory is stored and the unprocessed memory is activated and feeds into the present and causes that disturbance for us. So EMDR therapy is seen as being able to help the brain process that. It's like taking the underpants, putting them in the washing machine so they can be washed, dried, hard, and put away nice and neatly. Yeah, that's a really fantastic um, explanation. And I think afterwards, it will quite quickly people will kind of say well that memory I still have the memory but it doesn't um isn't as emotionally charged and it feels like it's in the past rather than kind of being very present and alive every single day yeah and and that's the thing yeah yeah Uh, because uh, once it is processed it's uh whenever the the memory is lying in unprocessed form it's stored in what's called implicit memory once right. it's processed, it's then moved to a different type of memory storage called explicit memory. It's also known as declarative memory. Mm. And uh, once that's stored away, then uh, we know what happened, but uh, it feels as if it's in the past, just like a normal everyday event that the brain has processed. We know what happened. It's got a date and time stamp on it, and it yeah. also feels as if it's in the past. Yeah, and that's exactly where you want kind of traumatic. We can't eradicate them, but we can kind of tone them down and put them in the right part of the memory bank. What what would you say EMDR is, is most helpful for? You've mentioned kind of two types of trauma there, which I think is an interesting distinction because most people think of post-traumatic stress as just the kind of big T's that you mentioned. But what would you say EMDR is most helpful for in the Types well, of things. Uh, I think it would be fair to say it's helpful for psychological trauma, both big T tra- traumas and small T traumas. Mm. Uh, the big T traumas, uh, that's what the evidence base has been built on. And uh, when the, the big trauma T 
T traumas occur, they get locked in the brain, stored in implicit memory. But mm. whenever the smaller T traumas occur and the brain hasn't been able to process them, it challenges, the experiences challenge the brain's ability to process it. And they too become stuck in implicit memory. So the research base has been done with the big T traumas and demonstrated that it works with them. Mm. But uh, it also works with the smaller T traumas that have been stored in the same type of memory and can move them to adaptive resolution. The, the smaller T traumas could be um, ranging from humiliation by a teacher at school, mm. uh, being bullied by other kids, uh, being humiliated by a, a, a supervisor at work, or yeah. put down by a supervisor at work. So, so uh, in the grand scheme of things, they're not life-threatening, but mm. they can challenge the brain's ability to process it. Yeah, I mean, I was really surprised. On our training, you asked us to, when we had the technique done on us, you asked us to think about a time you were humiliated in school and everybody had one of those experiences. And it was, you know, you just think it's something you don't think about that often. But when I brought it up, it actually had quite a lot of emotional intensity still attached mm -hmm. to it and then settled it down. But most people wouldn't think of that as a trauma. What do you, what do you think about um, kind of, phobias and stuff what is there much evidence around that at the moment well well yes because uh, uh phobias uh, will have their origin in some disturbing right, life yes. experience uh, as would uh, other forms of anxiety for example mm. uh, so let's say somebody who um, is phobic of dogs and yeah. you trace it back then there could be a, a situation where they're exposed to a dog in a threat situation but mm. it might actually go further back than that involving something uh, which had nothing to do with dogs. Mm. And it could be a situation of being in control uh, or yeah. uh, a situation of being fearful and uh, maybe vulnerable mm. uh, and a later situation involving a dog occurred. So with the like of phobias, uh, then we have the on clear onset of the phobia, such as yeah. maybe um, bitten by a dog uh, or maybe a turbulent flight. Uh, but if mm. you were to trace it further back, then there could be earlier experiences of what we call ancillary events that occurred. Mm. And for example, a um, client who I had one time who had uh, claustrophobia. Yeah. And there was a clear onset. He was in a lift one time whenever the lift broke down and mm. uh, the phobia of um, being in an enclosed space uh, came to the fore after that. But yeah. tracing it further back, when he was a child uh, at, um, at around about age four or five, maybe, I think it was by the age five, he uh, remembered uh, being put in front of the television one Sunday afternoon when a black and white movie was on where a man was thrown into a dungeon and left there. Yeah. And the way he described it, it sounded like the man in the iron mask. Uh, we're not talking about the Leonardo DiCaprio one in, in glorious colour. This was yeah. a black and white one. And I remember seeing that as a child too. And actually, it scared me. So I could wow. understand where he was coming from with that. So this impressionable child being fearful about somebody being locked in a dungeon yeah. and left there and, uh, and not having a chance really to speak about his fears and concerns yeah. to a parent and uh, later on uh, having a, a, that actual situation of being closed in, then that really activated the whole memory uh, structure and memory network. In uh, yeah. other experiences they had of being in crowds, busy shopping center, coming up to Christmas, things like that. And these are things that they tended to avoid. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because trauma is layered, and something like that that 
you know, just set the film just set the foundation for worries and then other experiences kind of mounted and then become kind of a phobia. It's so interesting. Mm -hmm. And I, I see many clients and I, I used to ask during assessment and sometimes I can still be found to, um, have you experienced any um, previous traumas? And most people will say no to that. And then 10 sessions in, you uncover quite a huge trauma. But because it's been part of their life for so long, or it's been normalized or avoided, people just don't recognize trauma as trauma. And I think my concern is that I just think so many people are walking around with, with memories and emotional, psychological distress that they just, because of traumatic memories, they just don't need to be holding on to. Um, can you explain what trauma is for people, how somebody might recognize it, you know, that might not necessarily understand what it is? Uh, I suppose that the, the thing uh, that would come to the fore would be uh, being aware of triggers. And, yeah. uh, so some of you might find themselves in a particular situation uh, shying away from it. So say, for example, social situations. Yeah. Uh, or whenever they're in a social situation, standing in the corner of the room. I'll give yeah. an example. I remember one time, uh, a couple of years back, going along to a uh, networking, uh, business networking uh, event. Yeah. And uh, signed in, and in I went and collected a glass of wine, and looked around the room to see if there's anybody I knew. And uh, didn't expect there to be, but uh, still scanned the environment. Saw this chap standing in the corner of the room, uh, as mm -hmm. far away from everybody else as he could. So I thought to myself, hmm, it looks like he may well be socially anxious. <laughs> That's a rather sad thing with being a psychologist, you know, just such things. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so anyway, uh, sort of wandered in this direction. I could see the look uh, concern in his face. Oh my goodness, he's coming towards me. And, uh, <laughs> so then I introduced myself and uh, said, I don't understand these things. You're supposed to introduce yourselves. And, yeah. and uh, what's your name? So he introduced himself. Then we got chatting. Yeah. And uh, we... Um, so I asked him uh, what he did, and he, he told me, and he asked him, what do you do? So I explained oh, to the psychologist. <laughs> so I got chatting anyway. And, and as it turned out, then uh, he, he got to understand a wee bit more and didn't uh, ask him at that time about uh, experiences that he had had. But it got him thinking. And uh, we'd exchanged business cards. And uh, yeah. two, about two weeks later, got a phone call from him and asked, could he come to see me? And yeah. whenever he came in, he said, well, we had that chat, got me thinking, and spoke to my wife about it, and uh, decided this is something that I want to deal with, because it's holding me back. Uh, so then when we explored a bit further, then there were um, quite a number of experiences he had going back into childhood. Uh, and in his case, it was in the family environment where he had regular poop dies from a parent, which mm -hmm. knocked his confidence as a person. And then he had uh, experiences being bullied at school. and. Uh, Really, that description I'm giving there describe a lot of people. That Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of people I've seen apart from him. And, uh, and um, many people who will be listening to this podcast as well. Yeah. Saying, He's talking about me. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so and that's the thing. The, the uh, criticisms from the parent uh, could, could have been well-intentioned. It could have been to try and get the best out of him growing up. Yeah. Uh, or it could have been because the parent was a nasty piece of work. But either way, result was the same and became locked in, stored uh, in state-specific form, stored in implicit memory. And it meant that when that memory was there with that, in his case, it was the meaning of there's something wrong with me. It mm. coloured his perception of labour situations, affected, affected his attitude and then his behaviour. 
So I think when he was in a social situation, there's something wrong with me. Well, people wouldn't be that interested anyway, so I'd stand in the corner. Mm. But then by standing in the corner, he could scan the environment and look out for potential threat. And that's why whenever he saw me coming, I could see the, uh, his body tensing a bit. Oh, no, he's yeah. coming towards me. Yeah. As if, uh, what's he going to say? Because yeah. fearful of attack. And that's what it's about. Because it boils down to uh, survival. Yes. And that's uh, what the primitive part of the brain is all about, keeping us alive. That's why the human species, uh, in fact, all the animal species in this have been uh, uh, extinguished by predators. Uh, that's why they've survived, because they've found ways to adapt. And yeah. It is about uh, avoid potential threat situations. So if you stay out of it, you don't get hurt. Yeah. So similarly in him, uh, I've been, and in the social situation, we're going to stand in the corner so nothing can happen. Uh, so somebody who's been involved in a road traffic collision, well, yeah. uh, mention of a car, who the thought of getting into a car could be anxiety provoking for them. So if they don't get into a car, their anxiety reduces. So then uh, this uh, is what's called a negative reinforcer. So the removal of something uncomfortable reinforces the behavior. Yeah, yeah. Really good examples, I think, especially the bullying. People can carry that through throughout their lives, can't they? And might not necessarily think that's something they can work on and kind of reduce so that it kind of you know has a really positive impact on their life do you think you know as we talk now we are bang in the middle of a global pandemic i'm sure you know neither of us thought we'd be here just only a few weeks ago exactly. and at the moment we we're just talking before about kind of um demand reducing but do you think the demand for kind of EMDR therapy is going to increase and and how can EMDR help people during this time or maybe a bit later on? Well, I think for the present time, there are two yeah. uh, strands. One is for those who are the frontline uh, workers, yes, uh, yeah. first staff, doctors, nurses. Uh, mm. So they're uh, having to make decisions now which uh, about people's lives which yeah. you may not have had to have made to the same extent in the past. I have a client who uh, is a nurse uh, yeah. frontline, and uh, she was saying that some of the, uh, the staff in her ward uh, uh, have the ex had the experience of two patients dying in the one shift. She says, well, <sighs> we've had a, like a patient dies from time to time, but two of their patients dying in the one shift and yeah. have that impact. Now, if somebody already has a negative self-belief of, let's say, I'm not good enough, led down by experiences uh, that be humiliated by a teacher at school or criticisms from a parent. Uh, but if that's already there mm -hmm. and then the patients die, so we draw on what we believe about ourselves to make sense of that situation we're in. So yeah. these patients died, there's something wrong with me, I've let them down. Um, totally irrational. Mm. But, it's, uh, but the thing is, uh, the colors, the perception. So EMDR can be used very effectively in that situation currently. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, it could be a sense of these patients are dying and uh, they, I'm not in control, yet mm. they've exercised all the skills that they've had with good support and everything else. They've maybe ha had uh, the, the proper equipment and everything, yeah. but still the patients are dying and I'm not in control. Uh, so that's something that can be processed currently as well. Mm. Now, we also have the, the people who go through the coronavirus who have the more severe symptoms. Yeah. And as a result of that, then it is a life threat situation, realistically. Absolutely. If they survive it, 
then uh, it, it is a big T trauma criterion A that you'd see in PTSD. Mm. Now, some people might develop uh, post-traumatic stress symptoms, some might not, and it's the luck of the draw. And mm. uh, But those who do, uh, then EMDR can be used effectively there too. Some yeah. may not meet the full diagnostic criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder, because as we know, it's a tick box. You've got the yeah. tick, 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 oh, you got the disorder. But if you don't tick all the boxes, you might end up with a, a, a an adjustment disorder or further down the road, an adjustment like disorder. Uh, yeah. uh, with that long uh, definition with prolonged duration of more than six months without prolonged duration of the stress or. Uh, so, uh, so once it's all over, it could still be there and disturbing. So it could be used later for the people who have been suffering uh, as well. Yeah, because it's my sense is that the kind of psychological side of things is, is yet to come, or the distress and grief and loss that's kind of going on at the moment is is going to be very difficult for people. It's a really tough time. It certainly is, and we can draw on experiences that we've had with uh, military personnel who have been yeah. various theatres of operation because mm. they don't all develop uh, post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic disorders immediately after. It could mm. be uh, months after, even years after. And yeah. I remember speaking to somebody who had worked with uh, veterans of the Falklands uh, War. Yeah. That, uh, it was 14 years after that that uh, significant symptoms started to appear in uh, a number of people. So there were some who had symptoms before, but then there's, we're seeing uh, more and more Falklands uh, veterans coming before 14 years later. So mm -hmm. I think the legacy of the, uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will be with us for a long time to come. Yeah, it's really interesting because I, I say I work with some veterans and I've seen some veterans that have... Um, done tours of duty and experienced horrific things not develop post-traumatic stress then something at home very what they would consider very minor like a very minor car accident has then triggered the past do you see that sometimes that I certainly it, do yes yeah uh, it's interesting uh, yes primarily with uh, the like of police officers and firefighters and the yeah. military too uh, they're doing a job that they're trained to do, so they have the skills to do it. Yeah. And there is a resilience uh, because they have those skills. Yes. Uh, but uh, I've, I would, I've often described it as uh, like a buildup of, uh, of stressors or, or, or trauma. Mm. And it's a bit like children's building blocks. And if you stack them up one on top of the other, the pile of blocks is going to sit stable up to a point. You yeah. add a few more, it's a bit shaky. And you add yeah. one on top of that, and it all falls over. Or it's a bit shaky and you just go low on it. Falls yeah. over at that point. So it's like the straw that broke the camel's back. And such things we have in common parlance that people recognize this. Like it's just something minor can trigger uh, something that's underlying it quite major. And yeah. Yeah, it can be very confusing when it happens, but that's, you know, it, it does make sense when you put it like that of, of what's going on. Yeah. And there's, in terms of EMDR, there's, um, I've been taught a few theories about how it works, and I, I'm not sure if I'm right, but I think EMDR, you know, some people might do a bit more research and go onto YouTube after this and see how it works. Um, and I think there's a few theories out there. What, what's your understanding of how EMDR is working and what it's doing in the brain? Well, I think you're quite right. There, there's uh, probably a number of PhDs uh, yeah. in, in this to, still to come because there. Um, 
significant work has been done over the years yeah. and initially uh, it was thought uh, it creates a similar effect to the rapid eye movement stage of sleep uh, yeah. when we process the events of the day and that still makes a lot of sense yeah. and uh, Daniel Siegel I think it was uh, who's uh, a neuroscientist had uh, added uh, some support to that and Francine Shapiro who, who originally DMDR uh, always maintained it uh, could create a similar effect to rapid eye movement stage of sleep and yeah. I would go with that too because this left right stimulation uh, yeah. is, uh, if we're doing the eye movements as fast as, as the eyes can move seems to help the brain do the processing mm. so eye movements on their own can ha have a um, an impact on imagery vividness and also the emotional component as well so research yeah. that's been done uh, even outside the EMDR field by academics uh, looking at eye movement research can have a significant effect there's also what we call the uh, working memory hypothesis, and mm. it's um, it's easier to test, and uh, it, uh, there has been significant research done looking at this too. But yeah. basically what that says is that uh, with working memory, we have a limited capacity to process information. It's a bit like the, uh, the random access memory of a computer. So if you're running a memory-hungry program, you can't run another program at the same time because it's right, using up yeah. all that available space. So similarly in our brains, we have this uh, working memory. And mm. There's a number of little boxes that we have available. It ranges between five and nine. Research tells us this. And if we were uh, activating the memory, the disturbing memory, we could be using up all the boxes. Mm. But by doing a dual attention task, such as the eye movements at the same time, you're using up part of the brain's uh, processing capacity. So you're using up some of the boxes in order be able to do the eye movements yeah and by doing that there's less space for the disturbing memory to sit so we're starting to learn that this event isn't totally present anymore and mm. uh, it's in the past so it's not a case of just do one set of eye movements and it's done it's uh, it's one set after another after another after another and it yeah. could be quite rapid as to, uh, uh, for the shifts that are occurring then mm. uh, so it's also another uh, hypothesis that was around uh, is um, the orienting response. Because if you think about the primitive man and, uh, yeah. and the, <clears throat> out in the woods looking for food and the, the primitive brain going back tens of millions of years, then primitive man still had the amygdala, which we in modern day still have as well. So yeah. they were geared looking out for threat. Uh, and whenever uh, the, the amygdala sounds the alarm, stress hormones get released and we're going to survive a mode. We're no different to a dog, a cat or a crow for that matter. Mm. So uh, um, whenever that occurs, then uh, we're in that life threat situation or potential life threat situation. So, uh, <clears throat> so primitive man was out in the woods uh, scanning, the eyes are moving left, right, left, right, uh, watching out for threat. Oh, so, yeah. so if there was no threat perceived, then they know it's safe. So similarly for us, uh, processing with EMDR therapy, doing the eye movements, the eyes are moving side to side, scanning the environment. Mm. So we're linking into the disturbing memory, doing the eye movements at the same time, scanning for threat. There's less space available for the disturbing memory to sit. So now this orienting response is telling us there's no threat, there's no danger. Uh, and that's helping us uh, with that learning process that it's old stuff that it's in the past. That's so interesting. I think that last theory is the 
I've not heard that before, but I can see how that makes sense. So mm -hmm. it's interesting, isn't it? The very interesting theories. And I wonder if actually there's a, a little bit of each of them that's in play. So, well, I think that's the key thing because if we yeah. throw all our eggs into one, one basket, uh, they just had this disturbing <laughs> of broken eggs. Uh, so, <laughs> so if we had all our eggs in one basket, then um, then we're saying, well, this is what, how it works. But I think it's ha uh, there's things happening at different levels in the brain and at yeah. different areas of the brain are being activated. Yeah. <clears> there's <throat> a very nice study done by Bamber uh, Colk and colleagues uh, going back many years. There's mm. the SPECT scan study, single positron emission computerized tomography, where they scanned the brain uh, with the SPECT scan uh, where the trauma story was read prior to processing with EMDR. Yeah. Uh, so they um, the, the found that uh, the... Um, visual cortex was lighting up. So you can imagine the disturbing memory has been activated. There's this mm. image in the client's mind. So the visual cortex lights up. The uh, limbic area in the right hemisphere uh, was lighting up as well. So this is, there's now, this is a danger. There's a threat here. Yeah. Uh, the frontal cortex that we use for making sense of incoming sensory information, it was offline. And then Broca's uh. area in the left hemisphere, it was offline as well. But Broca's area is responsible for the production of speech. But right. You can think about that. If there's a threat, and uh, if we can't make, if we can't say anything or speak, then mm. it is adaptive for the life threat situation. Because if you don't make a noise, then the predator may not hear you. Yeah. In which case, then you Gosh. increase your chances of survival. So <clears throat> what they found was Broca's area, left hemisphere, was offline. A precipital lobe, lobe was lighting up uh, with mm. the image that was there, and the uh, right limbic area was lighting up as well. <clears throat> So they processed the trauma uh, using EMDR therapy and yeah. uh, so moved it to what we call adaptive resolution. And then the trauma story was read to the clients once again by the yeah. scan with the SPECT scan. And what they found was that the, uh, the visual cortex was no longer lighting up. So the image had faded wow. and it was not, not activating that area of the brain. The uh, right limbic and uh, left limbic were within normal bounds. The Broca's area was back online, so speech was back functioning, but also the frontal cortex, the uh, anterior cingulate area, was lighting up. So this is the area of the brain that we use for making sense of incoming mm. sensory information, being able to tell the difference between real versus perceived threat. Yeah. So quite a, a groundbreaking study, uh, but again, it was pre and post. So until we get to the days where uh, we can see what's happening as things pre, during, and post would be brilliant. Mm. Yeah, that's fast, absolutely fascinating, isn't it? There's some, you know, really exciting stuff out there at the moment in, you know, in, in kind of the research and a, a lot to come as well. It's, it's really exciting times. Mm -hmm. In, in, because of the um, pandemic, um, as many therapists has had to do, we've qu very quickly had to become, and we're often therapists are quite technophobes, we've had to switch our um, clinics online. And I had a couple of clients that I was doing EMDR with <coughs> face to face. And just because I'm, you know, part of this Facebook group and there was other therapists um, chatting about doing EMDR online, they gave me the confidence to give it a go because I'm not sure I would have done but I um 
to my surprise, it worked really well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I do like being in a room with somebody. I, you know, I think I'll, that will always be my preference. But be, for safety and, you know, in the pandemic, that's just not an option at the moment. And people still need um, help with their mental health. So, so this is what we're doing. So it worked as well. And although I'm nervous about not being in, in the same room as somebody, um, what I was just interested in what your thoughts are about delivering EMDR online because I mean we're just hearing from the government now this could kind of some kind of social distancing measures could go on kind of till Christmas I hope not oh, yeah and, so, and that's the thing it, it, it can be very effective online and I've, I've yeah. done that myself uh, have you uh, yeah more, <clears throat> more recently uh, mm. than I did in the past but I have done it in the past as well where I had a client who was abroad time yeah and I was able to work with them the important thing would be uh whenever we have that physical distance uh and doing it online is keeping the plant contained so the client safety yeah. is the important thing and mm-hmm. uh whenever we're taking the client's history uh then we're getting a good idea uh, as we would when plants face to face with us in the room as to uh can the client stay present in the room with us yeah. And we pick that up very quickly when we start talking about emotionally disturbing things. And if the client looks as if we're losing them, uh, maybe they're going into a high state of arousal uh, mm-hmm. or uh, they're starting to dissociate, then uh, we're getting an idea where the client is on a complex or continuum of complexity from the uh, well-adjusted at one end to the most complex client presentation on the other. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would certainly uh, be teaching the client whether they're in the room with me or whether I'm doing it over the uh, with Skype or Zoom or some other medium, is yeah. to uh, teach them strat- strategies for self-soothing so that they're able mm-hmm. to lower the arousal level. If they're prone yeah. to dissociate, uh, then to remain much more present. And mm-hmm. uh, so I wouldn't be doing the, uh, the processing in the first session. I'd be doing psychoeducation. No. I'd be doing uh, history taking and stabilization. Uh, mm-hmm. And then maybe completing the history in the second session. And, yeah. and, but but at that time, it gives me an opportunity to see, has a client been able to uh, keep themselves more grounded in the mm. period between the first session to the second one? And I could review uh, my position on where I think they are on that uh, continuum of complexity. Mm. So another thing we ask the clients to do is complete the, uh, the DES. And uh, we can ask them to do that. We can send a copy uh, of that uh, across them. We can fill it in, send it back to you. Yeah, or scan it back to you, uh, uh, and then uh, you could score that up and have a good idea of what the client would be. Mm. Uh, so let's say we've got the, the, the client is, is able to remain contained and we're, yeah. and have a, a moderate level of complexity in terms of the presentation and still uh, stay contained enough. Uh, so we're, 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 uh, if the client is able to, let's say, link into calm safety, so they're able to do diaphragmatic breathing or use the light stream, for example then uh, they can stay contained. So uh, once we get into the, the session with the client, linking into the, the memory, asking to bring it up. If the client uh, brings up, up a cluster of experiences, then we could ask them to notice an image that mm. would be representative of that. Uh, or if it's an individual memory, the picture that represents the worst part. And then we would link into it with the, uh, the, the negative beliefs, the emotions, the, the sod and the feeling of the body. But when it comes to doing the bilateral stimulation, mm. then uh, what I would be doing is, uh, if I want to do eye movements with the client, is to ask the client to move their eyes from side to side. 
Now, mm. normally we would be uh, using a pen or two fingers up and asking the plant to track that, but yeah. I would use something uh, which is auditory, so uh, like a tap sound. If you have a metronome, for some people might have a metronome, you could have like a tick, right. tick, tick, tick. Yeah. Or uh, if you're doing a, a tap sound with a pen on yeah. the desk in front of you, tap, 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 tap. If you want to do it faster, you could tap, 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 tap. You get right. to move the eyes from side to side. So that way that, that you can do the eye movements with them. Uh, mm -hmm. Waving your fingers in front of your, uh, your camera probably yeah. isn't a good idea. Uh, particularly if the client has a small screen in front of them because yes, you might yeah. even be moving your eyes uh, maybe a few inches whereas you'd want them to move it really from shoulder to shoulder. Right, uh, right. So another uh, way to, to do it and I've used this quite often with clients is to invite them to uh, cross their arms over their chest and tap yeah. left, right, left, right alternately. Some mm. clients might have their hands sitting in their lap tapping left, right, left, right alternately as well. So that way, uh, you can watch to see the speed you're going at. You could suggest just go a bit faster. That's it. That's it. Mm. Giving them the support that we would if they're in the room with us. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's really interesting. So it's very adaptable, actually, isn't it? It sounds like the focus needs to be on grounding and stabilization, which um, we're all trained in as part of the AMDR process anyway. But maybe spending a little bit more time on that in the first few sessions, which I, I think that's that's been my concerns as well, that if somebody gets too heightened, and I think there's some body cues that sometimes you can miss on, online, but there are ways around it, aren't there? And it's just kind of giving things a bit more care yes, and uh, attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just I'm thinking of a client who uh, I'm working with, who uh, whenever we connect with him, he has the cat, um, his laptop up close to him, so I'm hearing, yeah. seeing him head and shoulders. But yeah. whenever we were doing the taps, uh, then he was setting the laptop down on the coffee table in front of him. So we could see uh, him from his knees to his head yeah. uh, as he did the taps. Uh, so that way I could still see his facial expressions. I could see uh, what else was happening with his, yeah. his body as well. Uh, yeah. Whereas if we're in close, uh, we don't see as much as we do when we're back a little bit further back. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good good bit of advice. That, and it means that EMDR will be more accessible as well, because not everybody can get to clinic. So, so it's really good to hear. And um, the next question is about. I want to first congratulate you on being the first OBE on my um, podcast, which I'm very excited oh, about. <laughs> uh -huh. And can you tell us about becoming an OBE and how that came about? Oh. Uh Whenever it's awarded, uh, yeah. you're never told who uh, proposed you. So, um, wow. so nobody, nobody's ever told me. Uh, oh. but, <laughs> uh, but it was an uh, award in 2008. And it was, around, it was early 2008 that I, uh, I got a letter from the cabinet office saying yeah. the prime minister, who I think was Gordon Brown then, was oh, minded wow. to recommend, recommend to Her Majesty the Queen uh, to uh, uh, award me an officer of the Order of the British Empire. Uh, for services to healthcare, and uh, yeah. so uh, and you had to respond uh, within a certain period. So uh, once I read this, I almost caught the postman up going down the lane. You know, yes, please. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so then I had the opportunity then to um, uh, go to the investiture in November two thousand and eight. Wow! Uh, and uh, so it was a, a great experience. Uh, it was announced the birthday honours in June two thousand and eight. Yeah. And uh, then the investiture was in November of that oh. year. Wow. Uh, so I was in Buckingham Palace and 
it was a lovely experience and was able to bring my wife and uh, two of my kids as well. Oh. Uh, so they were old enough to appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, lovely. What an amazing experience uh, and honour, of course. And I'm sure, you know, EMDR is going to become more and more popular as time goes on. And people um, might be listening to this thinking, how, where would I find an EMDR therapist? Where would you direct people to get kind of an adequately trained EMDR therapist? Yes, the uh, place to go would be the EMDR Association website. And uh, okay. we, it was the EMDR Association UK and Ireland up to the, the 1st of April, whenever yeah. Ireland uh, set up its own national association. Mm. But it's still fledgling. Uh, but the names of accredited practitioners and accredited consultants in UK and Ireland are available on the, uh, the UK website. So the a, uh, website address for that is emdrassociation.org.uk. That's okay. emdrassociation.org.uk. And then that, there, there's a page, find a therapist. So uh, you can type in a particular name or uh, you can click on an area of the uh, UK and Ireland and uh, then it'll go down to different levels to show you who's available. Oh, fantastic. And I'll put a link to that in the in the notes as well with this episode. And also there's a, lo a lot of therapists that have, will be listening to this episode because um, I, I run a Facebook group called CBT in Private Practice. And um, quite often the question comes up, where can I train in EMDR? Of course, I always recommend your training, which I guess is a little bit on hold at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. But can you tell us about your um, EMDR masterclass training? Yes, uh, the, the trainings uh, are at a number of uh, three different levels. And mm. uh, it's accredited by EMDR Europe, as would uh, any training uh, in, in the EMDR uh, European community. Yeah. Uh, so they, the MDR Europe sets the standards and uh, a total of 52 hours of training. So part one, which is the three days, uh, is um, teaching, uh, a, a group session of teaching, then breaking into small groups to work on basically live material. So it'd uh, be three people working together, uh, identifying a particular challenging situation that they have and, uh, and um, over the three days, uh, working on that to help them process that uh, difficulty. And so it's identifying the past events, present triggers and desired outcome for the future and being able to process that. Uh, then uh, at the end of part one, I would expect people to be able to use EMDR therapy with a reasonably straightforward uh, client presentation. Not the most complex client that, that they might have, but certainly yeah. a fairly straightforward one or somebody they've been seeing for a while that, uh, that they've got done good stabilization work uh, with and uh, the client is stable enough to proceed. Uh, we have a one day part two and uh, what it, it does gives an opportunity then for people to ask general questions about the MDR therapy and yeah. also get case feedback as well mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we just make sure people are, are back on track, staying on track with the, uh, the standard protocol. Mm -hmm. And then at part three uh, that's when we take things to a higher level again. And uh, at part three, it's uh, about working uh, with more complex client presentations using EMDR therapy, but also uh, using the therapy for uh, particular groups and populations, such as first responders and military, uh, EMDR with grief, uh, EMDR with phobias, EMDR with somatic disorders, uh, would be another. 
and uh, again an opportunity to put things into practice uh, with the, um, uh, the practicum exercises. Yeah. Uh, after that, there, there's three hours uh, case supervision required to complete the basic training. So that, they'd either come and do it in a group session with uh, myself and my team, uh, or they could uh, source that elsewhere uh, within credit consultant somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And I, I've done all each part and it was absolutely fantastic and i think i really like the structure of it in that like you could do part one and then put it out to practice and come back i think the you know the time between meant that you could really kind of consolidate your learning and then come back for more advice and more training it works really really well and i felt very confident doing it and it's you know really transformational that's brilliant therapy yeah and the final question, um, which is that I ask all my guests, is if you could have a conversation with your 15-year-old self, what would you say to yourself? What would you like your younger self to know? Uh, well, <laughs> I think it's, it's a good question to yeah. ask. Because, uh, when I was age 15, I didn't really believe in myself much. And mm-hmm. uh, 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 an underlying belief of I am a failure. So oh, uh, when I came to age 16 at the O levels in my day, then yeah. past two, and thought, well, that's it. So what do you expect? Uh, and so I didn't believe in myself, but uh, and I might have tried, started something and then given it up partway through. And even when I was well through it, it was like self-sabotage. Yeah. But, uh, I didn't know then, but I know now. And uh, it went back to early life experiences where uh, I'd learned as a child that mm. uh, I'm not good enough. And mm-hmm. uh, that became uh, my mantra through life. And even when I lost my arms in the mm-hmm. service and I'd worked in that trauma later on, uh, the meaning that had for me is uh, I'm a failure. And this Gosh. is another thing I've failed at. And whenever that came up, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, so it was a part of that come from. So okay, I don't know, but uh, I'll go with yeah. it. And, uh, but later on, I, I realized that uh, it was all linking back to those childhood experiences. Mm. So if I were to have that ch- uh, conversation with the 15-year-old me now, mm. I would say believe in yourself yeah. because you have the capability. And when you start something, stay with it because you will get through it. You're intelligent enough. Yeah. And after I lost my arms, I left school with two levels. I hadn't, uh, was still a constable in the police, two mm. and a half years service. I hadn't even got sitting in the sergeant's exam, which I'd been studying for. And mm. I, but I had got good marks in, at the, uh, in the examinations. Yeah. So uh, I knew I could have had a good career in the police, but now it was closed to me. Mm. Uh, so um, uh, whenever uh, a psychologist had tested me, he says, you're intelligent enough to go to university. I thought, I wanted, have you tested the right, or have you scored Gosh. the right paper here? <laughs> and, uh, so ended up, I went to university and I got a first class honours in psychology. And, and wow, so that. smashed that belief out of the window. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And then went on, did a doctorate in clinical psychology after that. Yeah. So it was really wow. only when I started processing my past traumas with EMDR therapy, that mm. I started to believe in myself more at mm. confidence, but I started to believe more and mm. uh, what I could do. Now there's no ceiling on my thinking. So oh, that's lovely. Doing it now, I can say, yeah, I can do it if I choose to. 
yeah yeah that's fantastic what an amazing story and it's nice that you've had kind of a personal experience of, of shifting those beliefs that you know make life so hard if we walk around thinking we're not good enough and I think lots of people do don't they or I'm a they failure makes life so difficult but we, we they can be changed they can be transformed can't they so that's they so can. interesting mm-hmm Thank you. I think I'll have to put all these together because there's every. I think 15 is a very tricky age for most people, isn't it? And everybody I've spoken to has kind of gone on to amazing things, but 15, we're really struggling with one thing or another. So it's been absolutely fun, fascinating um, talking with you today. And I'm sure people want to kind of find out a bit more about you and and what you do. Where's the best place for people to get a hold of you? through uh, the EMDR Masterclass website. So it's emdrmasterclass.com. That's emdrmasterclass.com. Great. That's brilliant. And I'll put a link to that website as well as I shared the podcast around. But thank you so much for being on. Pleasure indeed, sir. And thank you for inviting me. Pleasure. Thank you.